Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, we're finishing Matthew today. It's been a challenging and refreshing book, but I think one of the things that stood out the most to me and hopefully to you through the study of this book was the importance of growing in our knowledge of the Old Testament. Matthew was huge on that. He wrote this book to Jewish Christians in the first century who were suffering persecution, and he just seasoned this entire book with prophecy, a lot of it from Isaiah. But I I hope that one of our takeaways from this book was the importance of going back and digging down deep into the roots of this story that it didn't just start in the New Testament, but has been going since the creation of the world. And then in order to fully appreciate the majesty of all the inner workings of what God is doing, it requires of us to go and study and learn and grow in things that we may not feel completely comfortable with, and that's okay. That you can have been walking with the Lord for 50 years and still need to grow, and that's okay. That's good. And you may have just been baptized like two months ago, and it's looking like there's a mountain to climb, and that's good, and that's okay too. There is no end to the deep well that is our God. Amen? And that well runs very deep, way deeper than even the New Testament. That things in the Old Testament inform the New Testament in ways that we didn't even understand. And that is glorious. And I hope that that's one of the takeaways. But last week, while we've been going through this, we got up to Matthew 27, and I almost finished 27, that chapter, but I didn't. And then uh, we, we got through the events of Jesus' death, the earthquake, the temple veil. Um, but afterwards, a few of you came up um, with some questions about these specific three events. Um, for a, few, a few of you were uh, kind of chummy about it, and they said, you know, you, you rolled through that stuff pretty quick. Perhaps you should slow down a little bit uh, because you went over some pretty heavy stuff. And they're right. Um, And so what I want to do is I want to go back today and I want to read just a little section starting in verse 50. At the moment that Jesus cried out and yielded up his spirit, I don't want to start from there. So we went all the way up to like 54 last week, but I want to back up just briefly to 50 so we can touch on these important events one last time. I hope that's okay. Uh, If it's not, you can just surf Facebook for the next 10 minutes and then pick up when we're done. (laughs) All right, Matthew 27, verse 50. It says this, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised back from the dead. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So what I want to do is I want to look at these three significant events one more time. The first one being the temple veil being ripped. Now, it is important for us to understand the significance of this um, by understanding the importance of the temple. <clears throat> now, if you have any uh, roots in studying and understanding the Old Testament, the temple structure has its roots in this thing called the tabernacle. So if you remember the story of Exodus, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, and God ultimately freed them, and Moses led them out into the wilderness to this mountain, one of the things that God told Moses on this mountain, besides just the Ten Commandments, was I'm forming my own people, and I'm forming a place for them to worship, and it's gonna be called the tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, there's gonna be a couple pieces of furniture. I want uh, somewhere to make uh, sacrifices, I want an altar, I want somewhere for the priest to wash up ceremonially, ceremonially when they're done, uh, called the laver. Uh, when uh, there's another piece of furniture, I want a table with bread on it to kind of symbolize the bread of my presence, that I'm there among my people. I want a candlestick with lights continually lit all the time to symbolize the fact that, that I am light in a dark world. I want this um, kind of uh, um, an, uh, almost like an altar. It's like a tall, kind of look like this table with like horns on the corner of it. And I want incense burning it, filling the room with smoke. And I want this other piece of furniture uh, called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's this box and on the top of it, I want angels. And that box is going to be essentially the symbol of where my presence here on earth is going to be. And it was set up in a tabernacle or a tent. And so you can imagine um, uh, this tent structure and around the outside of it is this huge fence. So when you'd walk through the fence, the first thing you'd come to was that altar where the priests would make the sacrifices. And then you'd come to the laver, which is the place where the priests would wash themselves afterwards. And then you'd walk up to the tent and the tent would be split in two, not in half, but like in thirds. So when you walk through the door of the tent, the first two-thirds would be a room, and then the last one-third would be a room. In that room, the two-thirds front of the tent, you'd have the table of showbread to your right, you'd have the candlestick to your left, you'd have uh, the um, altar of incense right in front of you, okay? And, and priests were allowed to come in here and perform priestly duties and whatnot, but right behind the altar of incense was this curtain. And for the tabernacle, it was a large curtain, but this curtain blocked the section between this two-thirds of the room, the front of the tent, and the back of the tent. When you first walk in, that two-thirds, the front of the tent, was called the holy place. And behind that curtain was called the holy of holies. And behind that curtain was one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And priests were only allowed to go in there once a year to perform a specific sacrifice, and it had to be a very specific priest. Well, this model carried with uh, Israel all the way into the promised land with Joshua. They set it up. And uh, eventually, David, when he became king, uh, he brought the ark back into uh, um, uh, Jerusalem. He had it out in front so everybody could see it. That's a whole other sermon. But after David died, his son Solomon took over, and Solomon built a temple for these pieces of furniture. So rather than a tabernacle of a tent, now it became this huge, massive structure, and it was gigantic. But it was still the same pieces of furniture. There was a new altar, new labor, but same Ark of the Covenant. But this time, this curtain was massive, 
And when I say massive, like I really mean massive. The curtain was 60 feet tall, it was 20 feet wide, and it was about as wide as the width of a man's hand. So about four inches thick. Now there was a, a commentator, a Jewish commentator named Josephus who wrote in the first century, and he records that this uh, veil that resided in the temple at the time of Jesus' life was so thick that you could tie horses to each side of it and they could run as fast as they could in the opposite direction and not rip this thing in half because this bad boy was thick. So now we go back to this event. Jesus, he cries out again with a loud voice in verse 15, he yields up his spirit and behold, the curtain that's 60 feet tall, 20 feet wide and four inches thick rips into from the top to the bottom. This veil that symbolically blocked the people of God from God's presence has now been ripped into from the top, up in heaven where God lives, down to the bottom, and now the ark is completely exposed for all to see, symbolically letting all of Israel know that the work of Christ has now eliminated the barrier between man and God, and we have access to his presence. It's beautiful, right? Sorry I went so fast last week. <laughs> the next thing was the tombs. This earthquake shook the ground, and we're told that rocks were split in two, and tombs were opened. Now, at this time, Jewish people didn't bury their uh, dead in the ground. They put them in tombs, so they would carve out this area in the rock, and they had a whole way that they would do it, and they'd put the body in there, and they'd put rocks in front of it, and sometimes you'd kind of stand out, and you could see, like, it would look all flat, but as you'd be walking up, there'd be kind of this dip and this little walk down, and then there'd be, like, this rock, and then it could be moved, and then there's a tomb, and there's, like, tombs everywhere. What we're told is that at the moment this earthquake happens, rocks are shaking all over the land and the rocks that blocked the tombs were just rolled away, broken in half. And now these tombs are open and the saints who were in these tombs have now gotten up and come back to life. When Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit, the power of resurrection was released through that land and saints who were previously dead were not dead anymore. And then Matthew tells us that two days later, on Sunday morning, these guys who had been raised from the dead two days before on Friday afternoon got out of their tombs and then started walking through the city. And people are like, is that Pop Pop? The work of Christ on the cross did twofold. It did two different things. First, it ripped the barrier between man and God, and it also released a dynamic new power through the land of Israel in a way that has not been seen ever before or ever since. It was so profound that it actually raised people from the dead as a foreshadowing of what Jesus would be doing just a few days later. And these people got up and walked around and people saw it and they were witnessed. Now, here's the beautiful part about it. 
the veil being ripped, the earthquake, the sky getting dark, the people coming back from the dead. These soldiers who were not believers, who had been mocking and beating and making fun of Jesus, saw these events and their reaction was, we were wrong. This guy was the Son of God. Now it's not recorded here, but you can go back into early church writings and you find out that a lot of these soldiers, they actually joined the early church and became Christians, which is marvelous. So what are we seeing about Jesus? That the work of Christ was strong enough to break the barrier between God and man. It was strong enough to raise the dead and is still doing that today and will also do that in the future. But those signs, the actual physical things that we saw him do and that we are watching him do in the lives of believers now is enough to shift the hearts of non-believers today. So what does the non-believer in this world need from the church? It's not good coffee. It's not shorter sermons about movies we watched. What they need from us desperately is changed lives. They need to see the earthquake that brings that dead man who is a lousy husband and a lousy father back to life. That's what they need to see. They need to see that they now have access to a holy God who loves them and gave his son for them. That's what the world needs to see. So, the power of God that was working in these events was important for us. And it was important for the first century church because essentially it did one thing. It validated every single thing that Jesus said he would do. Non-believers need to see this stuff acting out in our lives, but for this moment, just focusing in on Jesus, why is this important for us and why was it important for the early church? Because it validated every single thing that Jesus said. And if he said this would happen, and this was a big thing, and it happened, then let's go back and look at all the other things he said and start trusting those things too. You following? So what did he say? This means that we can face trials and tribulations and be confident that he will return for us. It means that when he talked about the fact that when we're pure in heart, we shall see God, that we can live in a way that is pure in heart and we can be promised that we will see God. That we're not just these goody two-shoes trying to do the, same, the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We're people who are being obedient to the word of God because we're promised when we are, we will see God. We will see him working in marvelous ways in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love. And I want to see that. And if that is predicated on me living a pure life, then I'll go ahead and live that pure life, not because it's a good thing to do, because I want to see him working in my life. I want my eyes open. Open, and I'm told that I can't have that unless I have a pure heart. So let's go ahead and have some pure hearts. If he says that he's not going to, if we're the kind of people who forsake our treasure in this world and that that's okay because we have a treasure in heaven, then we can go ahead and guarantee that we have a treasure in heaven. If he makes a promise that we can stop being afraid of death because he has conquered it, then when the world tells you 
that the greatest thing you have to fear is death from some pandemic, we just kind of stand back and say, well, if it's that or it's something else, we're all promised the same thing, and it just means I'm going to meet him closer or meet him sooner. Now, look, I understand. I'm not trying to be insensitive to us because a lot of us have lost loved ones through this pandemic. But there is one thing that our king has asked of us, and that is to stop being afraid of the one thing he gave his life to conquer. And, and, and what it comes down to for a lot of us, I get this, what it comes down to for a lot of us is not necessarily the fear of death, but it's the fear of losing what we have or losing those loved ones or not getting those people who are close to us anymore. But I got to tell you, in this book, there's no promise that you will always have the things that you have, but there is one promise that you will get that and more back when you trust him. And if that's not appealing to you, then you should just abandon this whole following Jesus thing right now. That's the promise. That this world is not what we get. That those great relationships that we have right now, this isn't all there is. This is just a mere taste of the joy we will have when we surrender this for that. And if that's true, then it doesn't matter what doctors tell me about anything or what some pandemic happens or what might happen to me on the ride home or what might happen to my children. Look, this is getting, look, my kids are hitting that age where now they're driving and they're out of my eyesight. And I, I, some of you guys are familiar with this because you've got kids, you're empty nesters, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are just like, just close your ears because you're not there yet. Just don't even listen to this. But look, listen to me. I have, a, I have a conversation, I have the same conversation with my son every time he leaves the house. I look at him and I say, I love you, come home to me. I'm not afraid of the way he drives. I'm afraid of those people from South Florida who moved up here to Tallahassee and the way they drive. <laughs> Because they're turning Thomasville Road into 75 that runs through Atlanta. I'm afraid of those people who are whipping out a child's trying to make a 20-minute lunch break. You know what I'm talking about. We can't control the things in our life. We can do everything right, everything God's told us to do, but we live in a broken world and there are things that are out of our control. But if you're not okay with that, then this is not the guy to follow. <laughs> Because that's, that's the call, forsake control. Rest in knowing that I got it when you can't watch it. Ah, uh, look, I'm a dad, I don't know if I'm okay with that. I'm still struggling with it, but I'm getting through it. And all of us need to. So the fear of death, say goodbye to it. It's not something that we do. Now, let's continue, verse 55. It says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Joseph, that's Jesus's mom, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We know her, her name is uh, Salome. We found out that in uh, the book of Mark. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea uh, named Joseph, and he was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked, 
for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in its own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite of the tomb. All right, now these events take place Friday afternoon. And we're told that a disciple named Joseph provided a tomb for Jesus to be buried in. And we're told in verse 56 and in verse 61 that many women were there through it all. Many women had followed him from Galilee. Many women were there at the cross. Many women were there when the stone was rolled. Many women, we'll find out, showed up the morning of. Women, 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 everywhere. Where are the disciples? Now we know from uh, John that John was there, but he had 11 disciples. What does this teach us when Matthew calls out the fact that there were many women following him and they were essentially some of the only people who stuck around during the crucifixion, during the burial, and during the resurrection? Well, the first thing that it teaches us is this story has to be true. Because if Matthew is writing in the first century and he seasons the story with all of these women everywhere, then there is no way that this could be fabricated because at this period in time, women had no rights and in the court of law, their testimony was not considered valid. A woman could not testify about anything as being true because they were viewed more as property than image bearers of God. So if Matthew is trying to make a case that Jesus did in fact die, that he was totally put into a tomb and then three days later rose from the grave, if you're going to fabricate a story, you don't fabricate it with people who, who their uh, uh, testimony cannot even be accounted in the court of law as witnesses. If you're going to fabricate a story, then you filled it with his disciples. But this story paints the disciples in a terrible light. They were not even there. So, why is he adding in these women? Well, he's including it because it actually adds to the credibility of the story. Because it runs against every way that the world would do things and tell stories, and it reinforces the way that God does things and the way that God tells stories. But there's another point here. And I bet that this is probably not a sermon point that you've ever heard in a church before, but I'm not like other pastors. So here's my point. Women are awesome. <laughs> the Bible tells us that women are awesome. Why are women so awesome? They're awesome because they model compassion and understanding and emotion in a way that guys just want to hide it. It's not that we don't have it. Well, some of us don't. But most of us do, and we cope through it by hiding it. That's why the disciples weren't there, because they were overwhelmed with emotions, and they went and hid and threw a pity party. 
Now, I'm being a little hard on them, but it's not like they weren't told this was going to happen. These women had compassion in a way that the guys like to hide it, but also they understand the value of being present in dangerous situations, and and not just dangerous situations, but sad and sorrowful situations without the need to fix something. You know what I'm talking about, guys? If we start sharing our feelings, the end goal to that conversation is something's getting fixed. It may not be what we talked about, it may be the truck, but something is getting fixed when we're done talking about our problems. But sometimes there's a moment of grief and loss that is so deep in our souls, it can't be fixed. You just have to sit in it. And, all, and what you need most is not somebody trying to fix it, it's somebody just listening. And sometimes you don't even need them to listen because you don't want to talk. You just need them there. And there is value in being present without doing something. And women understand that. Now, why is it that women seem to have the spiritual connection that oftentimes guys don't. If you look at the cross-section of the, of the American church, by and large, women are doing most of the ministry work. Most guys in most churches are asleep. During the sermon, during the week, in their lives, they have been lulled to sleep by what I like calling the nothing giving themselves to nothing, nothing of value, and when it comes time to treasure the thing that matters most, uh, they can't because they're asleep. Why is it that it seems that there is some kind of innate connection within women? Why are they here, and why are the disciples gone? I, I, I have no biblical basis for this, but I have a hypothesis. And, I, and here's my hypothesis. It is rooted in the way that women were created. God created man by bending down, forming the dirt. And God created woman by removing a rib from man and fashioning her out of the rib. The rib is the bone that protects the heart. That's its only job. And I have no scriptural basis for this, but I have a working hypothesis that one of the reasons why ladies you just know how to pray, how to connect. There's just a connection there that I, I can't explain. I think it's because of the way that you were formed. You were formed from the very substance. You, deep in you, you have this desire to protect because that is what you were formed from and that is what you do best. So why am I bringing this up? Why am I just dancing all over the modern idea of of there is no genders and everything's fluid? Why am I being so concrete in the idea that biblically there is a difference between men and women? Because I think it's important for us men to look to wives, to mothers, to sisters, to daughters in a way that cherishes them and doesn't feel like they are being a burden to us that values and listens to them rather than beating our fists trying to get them to do what we want them to do. 
in our homes, in culture. As men, because of the way we were made, there's this leadership thing inside of us where a lot of times we feel like, look, this train would just run a whole lot smoother if you just did what I told you to do. Dads, husbands, you know what I'm talking about. But when it comes down to it, God is allowing those things in your life to not run the way you want them to because there's some things in you that need to be changed. And guess where you will learn that from? By treasuring the companion that your God has given you. Amen? Some of you are like, I'm not going to amen that. <laughs> I don't like that. Let's move on. What's next? It's all right. You can run to the altar at the end. Verse 62, it says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation. So now we're on Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb as secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So on Saturday, the chief priests are still continuing to plot and scheme against Jesus <clears throat> because they didn't want the people thinking that Jesus did what he said he did when actually the disciples went and stole the body. But the irony of the situation is that not one single disciple is in the emotional state to steal anything. They're not stealing anything. They are overwhelmed with grief. But the other irony here is that the chief priests acted on the resurrection in a way that the apostles did not, which is so fascinating to me. So everybody, even the people who didn't believe, knew Jesus was regularly saying, I'm going to die and come back from the grave three days later. Even the chief priests knew that he was saying this. So if the chief priests knew that and took some action on it, but the disciples knew the same information but did not take any action on it, how do we reconcile that? Why, the, why did the disciples not act? Well, we know from the book of Mark that the reason why they didn't act was because they didn't believe. That next day that he rose, we're told that evening, he showed up to the disciples who were sitting around in the room and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. So we know that they, were, um, they had unbelieving hearts, but we also know that they were overwhelmed with grief and loss. And it was starting to splinter some of them to the point that Jesus showed up on the road to Emmaus to two of the disciples who were not with the rest of the guys. So things are kind of splintered and they're being overwhelmed with grief and loss. And I think this is an important lesson for us because Jesus made it clear multiple times, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna come back from the dead. This truth that he said from his mouth was designed to inform the actions of the disciples. I want you to trust me. It's gonna be painful, you're gonna watch me die, but I'm telling you, I'm coming back, so be there. Trust me, it's just, this is gonna happen. So I'm telling you this truth so that your actions and how you make decisions will be, be informed off of this decision. 
But here's the thing. They had the truth, but their actions were informed by the truth. Their actions were informed by their emotions. You see where I'm going with this? They were overwhelmed with grief, and because they felt so sad, legitimately so, but because they felt so bad, they made a choice about their lives that was different than the choice they should have made if it was based off of truth. And this is the point we're trying to go with today. Truth is meant to guide our choices, not your emotions. Truth informs your actions, not how you feel. What God has said informs what we do, not how we feel. It's incredibly easy in this day and age to let our emotions drive our decisions, but that as a people of faith is not what we do. We go by what God said and not how we feel. That's important, I'm gonna say it again. We go by what God said and not what we feel. Now God can move through your emotions and your feelings sometimes, and he can speak to you, but that is then weighed against the word of God and his word, his truth. He's not gonna tell you something that's contrary to what he already said previously in this word. He's not gonna tell you something that's contrary to what he's already established in his word. So if you're a single person and you're looking at this married couple and God, God tells you that's gonna be your husband, that's not God. That's something else. So the question now would be, why do we not make decisions off of our emotions and our feelings? Well, the first reason would be because our feelings are deceptive. Proverbs 21.2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. You can't make a decision off of what you think or feel because you always think you're right in your own eyes. So you need some outside counsel, this, to inform the way you think because everybody thinks they're right, but we can all deceive ourselves. The other reason why we don't trust feelings is because feelings can be manipulated and they can change. Proverbs 18, 17, it says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So you can see an entire social media presence show up one day about some social justice thing you didn't know anything about, and all of a sudden you get behind it until another perspective pops up and you're like, oh, hold on a second. I need to reassess some things. This seemed right until I had this other piece of information. This happens in jury rooms constantly. It's the reason why there's a plaintiff and a defendant, because the first story always seems right until more information is brought forward. The reason why we don't trust our emotions and our feelings is because feelings can be manipulated by the first person telling the story. And our feelings can also change. So feelings are not a solid foundation. God's word is a solid foundation, but there is an important point I must make in this before we go forward. Emotions and feelings are not evil. God created them. So what you might hear me saying is, man, you just go ahead and abandon all those emotions and feelings. While we're singing, if you start feeling that sense of like, mm, I just gotta, no, don't do that. You just stand there quietly and just think about the Lord. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Well, look, 
Psalm 37, 12 through 13 tells us that God laughs. John 1, 11, 35 tells us that God mourns. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 tells us that God hates. Exodus 34 through 14 tells us that God is jealous. Psalm 104, 31 tells us that God rejoices. God dances over us, he sings over us. There is all kinds of emotion in this book that we are told that God has towards us and his creation. So emotions came from him, they're not a result of the fall. So if we're not supposed to make decisions off of emotions, but those things are things that God gave us, how do we reconcile them? Well, we rest on this truth. Emotions are from God, but they should not, excuse me, emotions are from God and they should be used to worship him. But a better way of probably saying it would be this. Worship God with your emotions. Don't worship your emotions. You follow? This is an important thing for us because you will see in this church a culture of people who are okay with solid biblical truth, but also rejoicing and worshiping God with their emotions. You'll hear it from me from time to time. I will give a whoop whoop from the back pretty loud. I will whistle and you're like, is this an FSU guy? Who is whistling at church? It's me, that's me, I'm the whistling guy. The reason why I do that is because I am keenly aware that the fact that God has given me a sense that just kind of, of his presence, man, it just bubbles up and it just overflows and I just can't stop it. Now look, in the setting of church, there is a place and a room for that kind of stuff when it is contributing to the atmosphere of all of us seeking Jesus. It can quickly step into the realm of it, all of the attention is now not on Jesus, the attention is on you. And it is my responsibility as a pastor to keep that stuff in check, and I do the best I possibly can. But we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, because one thing kind of got really wonky and we feel weird about it, then we're not gonna go and we're not gonna express ourselves by raising our hands and worshiping. Look, if we just went ahead and got rid of everything that's weird, I wouldn't be your pastor anymore. <laughs> so you're gonna have to be okay with a, a certain level of weird because that's only by using your earthly eyes to see heavenly things. All right? All right, let's move on to verse 20, or chapter 28, verse one. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel saw, said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And go, behold, he's going to go before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, as they were running, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Man, that's my king. 
right? They're just hoofing it. I can't wait to tell everybody. And then, greetings. Jesus is there. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So early Sunday morning, the women returned to the tomb, the earthquake, stone rolled back, the soldiers are laying there like dead men. The angel appears and the angel says, come and see and then go and tell. And that cycle is important to us because this conversation is what started missions in the early church. Come and see what he's done and then go and tell people about it. And the beauty of this is this is not just a once in a lifetime angel says this. This is a representation of our entire cycle of the Christian life. What we are doing today as the people of God as we gather together and study the word is coming together and beholding, seeing, looking with fresh eyes so that we can be equipped to go and tell. And then he's doing all these amazing things during the week and then we gather again and we behold and we see and we look once again and then we go and tell. And in our private lives at home, we're coming to the word and we're studying and we're looking and we're examining and we're seeing things we didn't see before and we're seeing things in prayer and then we go and we obey them. We come here, then we go out. We go to the Lord and then we go out. That's the cycle of the Christian life. But here's the best part about it. What happens when you get your life deeply entrenched in the come and see and then go and tell? In the process of coming to see and going to tell, guess who shows up on the way? Jesus. Guess who shows up in the middle of you coming to see and then going to tell? Jesus. He's on that path. He shows up every time. So here's my encouragement to you. For those of you in the room who feel like Jesus is just far away. You've been away from church for a long time or, man, this is the first time in a long time you feel that fire in your belly again. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. I haven't seen him. I, I don't feel him. I don't know where it's going. I, I, don't, I don't know where to, I don't, I don't know where Jesus is. I feel like he abandoned me and left me. There is one surefire way to find him again. Now, he's not lost. You're lost. There's a surefire way of finding him again. Get back in this. Start looking examining, seeing once again, and then get out and go tell. Get out and go obey what you read in here. And I promise when you do that, you're gonna meet him every single time. And he's gonna be like, greetings. That is the joy of our king. He loves meeting us on the way of us studying and obeying what we read. Now let's conclude with this. Let's go to verse 11. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, <laughs> they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16, 
Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is how Matthew closes his book. The contrast of the leaders of Israel and the disciples of Jesus. As we leave Jerusalem, what do we find? The place of worship for God's people. What do we find happening there? we find more scheming and plotting and paying people off and lies. And so God calls his disciples out of there. Leave there and let's go back to where it all began in Galilee and I will meet you there. And when he meets them there, he talks to them and he gives them this powerful promise. He tells them, he gives them a command, go therefore, but he gives them this promise with the command. As you go, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Now my question today is if God is saying that if our responsibility is to spread the kingdom and he will be with us to the end of the age, have we come to the end of the age yet? No. It is not the end of the age yet. Therefore, this promise still holds. Meaning that as we finish this book, the very last promise that Matthew leaves with us is that God is with you. Now what does that mean? That means to the family who has gotten just terrible news, financially or medically, God is with you. He has not abandoned you. And what you need most is not a way out. What you need is to rest in the way he's going to lead you out. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because he is with you. For the teenager who feels like they're all alone, for the empty nester or the retiree who feels like they look back on their life and they feel like they've got nothing but regret, for the single mom trying to raise three kids, I have one word of encouragement from you and it comes from Matthew 20. The Lord is with you. Jesus is with you. Now that brings comfort, but it also creates some tension. Because for some of you, that is exactly what you needed to hear. I'm not alone. There is value in not finding answers to my problems Sometimes there is value in just sitting with the one that I love and knowing he is with me through it. I don't need my problems fixed as much as I need to know that I'm not alone. But for some of you, this creates some tension because if you are honest, that's not enough. Knowing that Jesus is with you is not enough. And it's not enough because this world is too much. It's not enough 
because you feel owed answers that you don't have right now. It's not enough because you need just a little more. It's not enough for him to just be with you and for you to rest in that because you have to put your hands on the wheel and control the outcome of what's next. And for those of you in the first camp, that that is enough. I pray that you rest in that this week. But for those of you that that is not enough, I pray as your pastor that you get no rest, that you are burdened by it, that you are kept up at night, that this works you over in a way that nothing has ever worked you over before because I'm telling you that until you get to the place where you treasure nothing in this world but him, you will never feel right. And the greatest gift God could have given you is this trial you're facing right now. So if he's not enough, fall on your knees and ask him to become enough. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.